Today on The Sizzle, I'm talking with Carlos Moreno, who is an international boxing champion, a businessman, uh, self-made, owns two amazing boxing gyms in London, and it is an epic conversation. I went to visit him in the Clapham Branch, which is under a railway arch. And so there are a few points in the recording when you might hear a train go over, but really was loath to lose the content and I, di- I didn't want to edit what you listen to. Um, this episode is also one of the last of the sizzles which were recorded with the 2018 setup. So apart from one other moving forward, you're going to be getting the new mic and uh, that improvement in sound quality. But for now, let's jump in. Here we go. So what are we on about today? So there, I mean, what's happening today then? There are so many things we can start with. I think for everyone on Moreno TV, they know this is none other than Carlito. Cocktail. So um, I should introduce myself. Yeah. Though. Regardless, like, because there are people on my channel that are probably watching this for the first time. So my name is Carlos Moreno. Um, I am the founder of Moreno Boxing. I'm a five-time international boxing, amateur boxing champion. Um, I was rated in the top 10 in the England boxing ratings in 2012 to 13. Mm. Um, I've won quite a lot of fights against some of the top guys around the time when I was boxing. Um, and I also am a British Boxing Board of Control professional boxing trainer. I just got my license last year. Uh, my first professional boxer that I ever worked with was O'Hara Davis, who I trained to win the WBC International belt via second round KO Bam. Um, over Paul Kamanga. That is a sickening KO. You guys need to go and watch that. Um, and most recently now, I'm actually back in the game. I'm exhibiting um, on my own show. So I'm pretty much now you can say I'm a little bit of a promoter. Um, I promote exhibition bouts. They're not real bouts. They're more like uh, kind of skill bouts. So I promote skill exhibition bouts on Moreno Boxing on YouTube, at the venues as well. So we just put, it, put our gloves on and just whack a whack. So I think I can actually provide a really interesting perspective for people watching Moreno TV because I actually met Carlos before he bought his first gym. Oh, yeah. There you go. I, I used to train in the gym that existed before Moreno Dawson. And I was there and Carlos came in. I remember he had a, a, sh- a, sh- a slick grey suit, purple shirt. Yeah. He came in, <laughs> shook hands with everyone in the room. And, and business attire. He was, he was like, okay, uh, we're going to be opening a boxing gym. You might want to check it out. And I, and I just loved that. I was like, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. Obviously, I'm losing my, my Thai boxing gym, so I'll check it out. And so straight away, I kind of just seamlessly moved into this, this first boxing gym. Seamless transition. Fast forward now, um, two and a half years. You actually bought box on the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this show. is it. Now there's a Clapham branch and a Dawson branch. And what Carlos was, was talking about is that they, they hold these exhibition sparring matches and the Dawson fighters and the, the Clapham fighters get to showcase their skills. Exactly. And that was amazing for me. Um, I did a podcast on my, my thinking, my emotions and the build-up to, to the exhibition in November. Yeah. So it was my first ever fight and it was an amazing night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had the nerves of being a, a, a fighter on the card, but even so, I just realized that it was, it was slick. 
uh, it, it was really feel good as well. You know, it, it was it was competitive, but there was a really communal atmosphere. Yeah, and there was never uh, there was no negative vibes. Not at all. Not at all. And that's something I'm really picky about because I come from a, a Muay Thai background. Mm-hmm. It's very respectful. Yeah, and, and your opponent was really respectful. Actually, he's a nice guy. Like, yeah, he really was. He was really respectful. He was. He, no dirty shots, nothing like that. When the referee said break, you guys step back. It was yeah. just, it was kind of like it was competitive sparring. Mm. And that's what we wanted it to be. Exactly. And that was something that made me stick around at Moreno Boxing, basically, is that actually what Carlos cultivated in the Dawson gym and now both sides is a respectful and collaborative atmosphere. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not crazy, but everyone's making progress. So that, that's kind of the backstory of how um, I come to train here and how I know Carlos. And today, man, I want to I wanna talk to you about boxing and business. That, you know, there are so many things we can talk about. Um, so from my point of view, you're making a change now. You're, you have been uh, just running both branches yeah. um, quite intensively and now you're, you're back in action. So how does yeah. it feel going from competing at the top of your game, you yeah. know, international level, um, taking some time out, two years out of, of fighting competitively and coming back? Where's your head at? Um, the, the interesting thing about when I take, I've always taken breaks, uh, even as an amateur boxer, I remember I took two years out, uh, came back, I competed, um, and I always take small breaks, but what, you know, where, when I take breaks, I'm not mentally switched off, off from the game. Mm. Um, there's a lot, my life revolves a lot around martial art and the martial art mentality. So I don't necessarily have to be physically practicing martial art to be living the way, if you know what I mean. So um, in terms of where my mind is at, my mind's where it's always been. It's in the right mind. It's in its right place. Um, I work really hard daily to always stay mindful, to not allow my mind to leave its right place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that involves a lot of meditation, a lot of things that I do, whether I am or I'm not boxing. Um, what changes when I am not competing um, I have more, I'm more calm, more tranquil with the way I do things. Um, I don't do as much when I'm not competing. Um, I still do a lot, but it's just that when I'm competing, there's the added thing of waking up early, going for runs. Uh, so a typical, I, I actually have a, a, a vlog episode that I filmed just yesterday uh, not just the day before yesterday, and it's uh, quite. It shows how intense my day can be. So it starts with me waking up in the morning, sometimes quarter to five in the morning. Um, it's you know meditate, you know meditate. I might go for a run depending on whether I'm training that day or not. Mm. Uh, on that day that I filmed the vlog, I actually ran on the track. I did sprints with the former European gold medalist Richard. Coach oh, Richard. Wow. Okay. So he taught me a lot about course training, how sprinters sprint. And we did a, quite an abusive track work. It was 500, 400, 300, 200, and 100 meter sprints and flat out, basically. Okay. And then following that, I went straight to the gym a couple of hours later to box. In between, I did, I edited some footage, some mm-hmm. video for YouTube. Um, and I'm also writing, so I write. Um, so I've got a project I'm working on, hopefully to be out by the end of this year. So I'm trying to have that discipline of waking up in the, in, the, in a clear mental state to where I can... I try to write two hours a day, mm-hmm. um, but you know anyone who's a writer knows that it's really tough. Some days you wake up, you know, you don't feel inspired. So there's a lot of sweat and grit and determination, as much if not more, um, 
as compared to like a, a, how can I put it inspiration mm. so it's a lot of perspiration mm. and inspiration uh, I remember I saw a it was a it was a it was a website that was talking about um, different routines like yeah. life routines yeah. and there was this infographic of the famous people throughout history so like yeah. you know Edison or Churchill or you know people who, who've achieved a lot in, in different fields yeah and it, it broke down their how they spent their 24 hours and yeah. what was really cool is they all did it differently right mm-hmm. so there, there wasn't like one formula but what was consistent across them all is that they stuck to the same routine most days yeah so you know they'd be getting up and you know, doing doing the same things at different at different points, and I felt like looking at that, it was them getting into a rhythm. You yeah. Know? So the creative juices start flowing at the same kind of point, and or you you sit down and you get gritty with the writing at the same point. Yeah. And you're like, I'm just going to write, and then whatever comes out comes out, and then you kind of make that as part of the process. Yeah, I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Grit. Oh, by um, Duckworth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, and that's a quite interesting. That's an interesting one because uh, it comes at a time when I actually need to be reading something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm midway through, and pretty much it says the same thing about having an established routine, mm. having a set way. Like Dr. Maya Angelou, she would have to be at her t- desk by 9 a.m. or like 8 a.m. and she'd want to be out by 3 p.m. and want to be with her family mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time. So she, it was her thing was at the 9 to 5, 9 to 3, and then I'm out. Nice. Um, I actually had, there was a book I read um, that was called uh, Triggers. I haven't heard of it. Uh, Triggers is, I can't remember who wrote that one, but I can leave a link in the description for you guys There's to link. check it out. And Triggers, basically, the, the premise is that um, it's about... Uh, triggering yourself to do something. It's about having set para- set parameters and sort of measuring your progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is, there's anyway, there's this thing that he does, this program that he does every day, and it's called uh, uh, something questions. It's called um, the... I don't know, but it's, it's these progressive questions mm. that you ask yourself every day. So whilst most people would ask themselves uh, something like, uh, did I wake up at 3 a.m. or 5 a.m. or whatever time you meant to wake up, this is more like how much of an effort did I put into waking up? At- okay. So even though you didn't wake up at a particular time, mm. you're measuring the amount of effort that you've put in commitment towards achieving that goal. So you'd have a series of questions. I developed a series of 20 questions and I did this program rigorously. Um, and it would, the first thing was, um, how hard did I try to wake up at 5.45, 4.45am? So I tried to wake up quarter to five every, every morning. Uh, and I'd give my score, uh, myself a score from one to 10. Uh, the next question was, how hard did I try to have a cold shower? Oof. As soon as I woke up, okay. So that's another thing that I would be doing. How hard did I try to meditate straight after? So I was on this for like a couple of weeks. I was mm. on this rigorous program, um, and I, I just saw like amazing productivity, amazing, amazing productivity. Um, even things like how hard, how much of an effort did I put into complimenting my staff? How much of an effort did I put into rewarding my staff members? Mm-hmm. Or into supporting them 
and giving them the tools that they need to do a better job. Mm. So it wasn't, it, I, I kind of took it to a level of like, it's not just about myself, you know, that's cool. it's about them too. So that's one way that I did things. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm not doing that program right now. I was thinking um, of going back into it, into that program, but things, it's so intense that programs like that, I used them during real purposeful periods of my life when I really need that discipline. Mm -hmm. For example, one of them was, um, as you guys know, probably you would know that uh, I have my fair share of lover boy situations (laughs) with the ladies. Used to, good now, but um, I would, like, when I would sort of be in between girls or whatever, like if I'd broken up with a girl and um, I I didn't want my mind to be thinking back to the the girl. You know, I, I sort of realized, you know, it's not productive for you to break up with a girl and it's done and then your mind is going back to them so what I I would do these programs to get me on my grind to get me on my purpose mm. and to make me forget about the past and things that happened so um, the first time I used it was when I had the little breakup it wasn't even that deep it wasn't a long term relationship or anything like that but it just it really helped me to zone in on my purpose and focus yeah. so much that I was like grateful that you know what I'm grateful I actually have so much more free time and available time and mental energy to apply it to something that I genuinely love and to apply it to bettering myself as opposed to thinking about like regretting things or thinking about the past. So that's one way of using it. <laughs> it's really interesting, kind of almost like a full stop, right? Because you're like completely changing your routine. It's very focused and it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of very driven as well. Yeah. And you're tracking, yeah. you know, like that. Exactly. You're tracking I've your got graphs and your intention. I've got graphs at home. Mm. I've got graphs of, what, how much, uh, you know, how many times did I wake up a quarter to five? How many times did I manage to take a cold shower? How many times did I meditate diligently? I did two, three days ago, I did a one hour meditation. Wow. Just literally just sat down, set the, it was actually 64 minutes. I sat down and I just, it was hard. Yeah, it was tough, but I just needed that to clear my mind because I was going through some stuff. I just started training again. Um, I obviously made this decision to, to, to compete and exhibit my skills and I wanted to kind of re- press the reset button and mm-hmm. I had too much going on. I felt like I had too much on my mind and I was about to go training in a couple of hours and I didn't want to go too too much and end up sparring and not perform. So I just did an hour meditation just to clear, mm. to clear my mind and, it, and it, yeah, it felt great. I love that for two reasons. The first reason is that's exactly what Duckworth talks about, right? It's passion and perseverance. Correct. You've yeah. got the passion mm. and with that graphing, you're tracking the perseverance, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, kind it's of great. Well, so I actually did that test. I did her, oh, her, right. her tests, um, her perseverance, uh, was it the grit test? It's yeah, called I, grit. It. I know it You is. should check it out. It's, it's not really, it's not nothing too kind of uh, exceptional. It's just a couple of questions and it's basically measuring your your grit level basically your passion level and you find that a lot of us you know our passion is a lot higher than our grit mm-hmm. so it's about matching passion with grit yeah um, and that's one thing I learned from boxing actually is um, you're not going to outwork me you're not going to outwork me I love, I love look to camera you know you're not going to outwork you know, me you know who he's talking to it's not whoever it is it don't matter who it is it don't matter who it is I sparred I, I came back into boxing I sparred the class B ABA champ just the other day um, and I got tired in the third round the next day I was on the track doing my sprints by Wednesday I was sparring again with the same guy and I was a completely different boxer mm-hmm. and 
you know, uh, my coach who was in my corner said, I've never seen this in my life. I've never seen someone come on a Monday, look one way and come on a Wednesday and they're completely different. Mm. I know because I know what's inside me. I know I have to die before you outwork me. I'm going to die before you beat me. Like, kill me first. So, boom. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely the perseverance. The other, the other reason that I, I really like that is that a lot of people get stuck in like a false economy of in a stressful period feeling like they have to put um, productivity all, all throughout the day. And actually, you, you're talking about stopping meditating for an hour and then reaping benefits after that. So when I was reading this book, Grit, yeah, um, I started feeling slightly overwhelmed because um, I kept thinking, if this is what it takes to get to that level, I don't know if, because I'm already working hard, I already feel like I'm doing a lot and mm. never mind everything that I do, but I actually run the business my, on my own. I don't have partners. I don't have investors. Um, so to, to feel like it takes way more than that to, to achieve. And I had to really think about it. And then I actually, as I was thinking this in my head, I came to a chapter where she was actually talking about how it's not about giving a hundred percent to a million things. It's about prioritization. It's about understanding what you're trying to achieve. So it's actually, if we've, you know, it goes through hierarchies of goals so you have your main actualization goal, which is the goal that you're trying to achieve that if you don't do anything else in your life, but you do that, like you've made it, you're happy. And then underneath that, you so what is that for you? I need to think, uh, do you know what? I'll tell you that in a second. Okay, okay, okay. So yeah, so that's at the top. That's at the top, right? And as you go down the echelons, you've got like, you know, you've got the means to an end. So you've got the end itself. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, some goals that are goals and will help you to get there or that are goals in themselves, like smaller goals. And then you've got underneath that means to an end, which is like a lot of the stuff that we do, they're just a means to an end, but we could get confused and we think that they're the actual goals when sometimes they're not. And sometimes we get stressed out if we don't hit those marks, but you're not supposed to hit all those marks. When you're talking about the lower echelon and you've got all those 100 different marks you're trying to hit you're going to miss a few but if you hit 60 70 percent and then you can elevate to the next level that will help you towards self-actualization that's what you're trying to do now um i'll answer your question uh what is my goal i don't actually have a goal per se specifically but my purpose you know i i drive i thrive off purpose is to inspire people through boxing so whether so to inspire people in many different ways whether it's being here on this channel mm. and sharing my experiences, sharing my viewpoints, uh, whether it's teaching technique, whether it's uh, putting on more classes at the gyms for people to come and make use of them to improve their lives, whether it's um, showcasing talent, yeah, showcasing my skills on Instagram. When I, even when I sparred, when I sparred the, uh, the guy at Islington Boxing Club, shout out Islington Boxing Club, um, I didn't just spar with him and nothing. Like, we had a chat. Like I sparred him last year and he basically said to me, I've never seen someone throw a jab that fast, that technical. I couldn't get past a jab. And he had a horrible time last year. Come back this year, he's national champion. And he comes to me and he's like, yo, I just got to say, since sparring with you, all I've been doing is practicing my jab. And then I was happy to hear that he's national champion. I'm like, I'm glad I helped. So that's another thing. Uh, uh, my friends were saying, were asking me to go and spar at another club. 
And I said to them, you know what? I want to go to Islington because that's the gym where I come from. That's the gym I trained at. And I want to, if I want to inspire those kids coming up, I want to share my knowledge with them a little bit. And if that means me getting in the ring and sparring with them and taking it easy on them and stuff like that so they can learn, or whether it's me having a one-to-one conversation or them asking questions. Mm-hmm. And they're happy. When I go into the gym, they're like, it, like there's stories about me. People tell stories about me. They, they come and they ask me stuff. And they, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like you've heard a lot about this person and now they've walked into the gym. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. It blows your mind. You're like, you've seen this person that maybe you look up to in flesh and blood, but then they're coming to you just normal and they're just chatting to you and mm. giving you inspiration. You're saying to yourself, I can be like that. Well, it's interesting because yeah. it, within boxing, there are lots of different kind of um, streams and threads to the yeah. discipline, right? And I suppose that there's a technical thread as in the actual techniques of boxing. And then there's the family thread that you build up through a club and through training. Yeah. And so actually, when you describe that, I think what's interesting is you, you're embodying all of that there because mm-hmm. you're, you're not only someone that they've heard about from the community and, you know, a potential role model, but you're also a technical role model. So you're delivering multiple functions in that, in that space. I like that technical role model, yeah. I feel, I feel like that I've got that responsibility because I feel I was at that club like I've been associated with them for 14 years and even though I've gone and opened my own two gyms you know as soon as I said actually I want to exhibit my skills in April the first place I went to is I went home I went where they know me I went to where they're going to treat me normal where they're not going to treat me like a superstar they're not going to put me on a pedestal at the same time they're going to appreciate what I've done Mm -hmm. as an athlete and they're going to respect that but they're going to still make me suffer. So when I actually got there, the, the actual, the, the director, Lenny, who, he, you know, he's like, oh, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go in there for two minutes and you're going to spot with him. He's fresh. You're going to go, I want you to punch nonstop, both of you, nonstop punching until you're dead. And then I'm going to put him, who's more experienced and bigger, and I've put him with you. And I looked, and then I looked at my coach and I said, see, this is why I come here, because I come home. They know what I need. You know, they're going to make me suffer. They know what I need, you know? Um, so yeah so so yeah the first place I, I believe that I believe if you ever whatever you want it's important to stay connected to your roots mm. it's important to stay you know it's important to be to be associated with the people that are always scared about you the people that always try to help you the people that know you because those people are always going to be real with you mm. they're always going to remind you of what it took for you to get where you need to get and for me to be able to walk into Islington Boxing Club and feel the love from everyone, have all the respect and be able to, to you know, spar and have a great atmosphere. And it's just incredible. It's, it's amazing to still have that, you know, and that gives me confidence that shows me how far I've come, but it also shows me how far I want to go. Yeah. I really like the way that you framed um, having a single purpose and, and the way that Duckworth kind of breaks down the fact that you might have like day-to-day goals yeah. that are, are means to an end. Because I was just thinking like, I, I've met a few world-class athletes. Yeah. Okay. And what I notice in them is this will to win. Okay. Mm, yeah. And I feel like when you, when you meet someone like that, you recognize it instantly mm-hmm. because not many people have it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking if I imagine you, trying to apply that world to win on all of those fronts. You've got the businesses, you've got the YouTube channel, you've got your exhibition fighting. I'm like, I'm what I'm almost like 
worried you're going to be putting in too much effort and exactly. too thin. Exactly. But you frame it like that, that, oh, these are these are means to your overall vision or mission exactly. of inspiring through boxing. So it's like, um, I, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett. He, he, he posed a question to his driver, his limousine driver, and he asked his driver and said, so what's your goal? What's your aspiration in life? Do you want to be driving me around forever? And the guy said, no, you know, I've got projects. I've got things that I'm working on. I'm doing this, doing that. So I him, okay, that's all good. When you get home, write down 35 things that you're working on, 35 projects that you're working on. And most of us are sitting here thinking, you're watching this and you're thinking, 35 projects, like who's going to sit down and write? For, but really, you'd be surprised how much we work, you're actually working on. When you start to list it, you list five, six, and then you're, hold on, actually, in this and this and this. You know, he, he said to his driver, write down 35 things you're working on and then circle the th- top five, the ones that if you were to die tomorrow, those are the top five that you want to achieve and forget about the rest. Forget it all. Mm. Just do the, focus on that. And, you know, when I think about it, that's, you know, I actually did that exercise when I come across that idea. I said, you know what? I have to make a decision. Um, I'm the type of person that I like a challenge. I like to, you know, if I have a hard, a hard spot on a Monday, I'm back on a Wednesday mm. and I'm back again on a Friday. And I, until I dominate you, we're going to keep sparring until I'm better than you, until I'm the best. If I'm in the gym and I'm training in the gym, I look around at my competition and I say, it doesn't matter what weight division these people are, what's their technique level, what's their skill level. I want to be the best. I've always been like that. So... You know, I remember when I was in Islington Boxing Club, I won um, Boxer of the Year 2012-13. It took me hard, hard work to get there because there was so much talent. They had so much talent that year. That same year, there was four of us ranked top 10 in England. That that one year, in that one year. So you can imagine the talent that was around. Yeah. But I've always looked around me and I said, you know what, I'm... You know, it took me, you know, I, I said to myself, I've got talent, I've got ability, I can do this. But the only question is how. Mm. I didn't know how, you see. You know, so you, we can spread ourselves, like you said, we spread ourselves too thin. You know, you, 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 you do the wrong runs at the wrong time, you run too much, you spar too much, you injure yourself. I had to learn to prioritize. I had to learn that hard work, but smart work. Mm. And that carried through to my business and everything else that I do. So, yeah, I, I circled Five things, YouTube channel, um, Moreno Boxing, actual gyms, actual franchise. Um, what else am I working on? Uh, my book. Uh, so I'm trying to write and finish, have something done by the end of the year. Uh, and two other things that I can't really recall at the, at the moment. Mm. But that's, that's it, man. That's the move. I want to talk to you about your book in a second, but I want to first talk about the fact that what I've noticed is in your training and your teaching, you use a lot of psychological techniques and you identify a lot of psychological processes. So I remember probably a year ago, we're, we're hitting the bag, we're moving around and you start talking about mindfulness and being with the punches, being in the moment with the techniques. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting to me because as a psychologist, that makes complete sense, right? But I'd never, I'd never been kind of training with somebody who would kind of encourage someone to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I, I talked to you about business and you, you know, you talk about a similar, a similar thing in terms of um, your decision-making. Um, then, you know, we, we become friends and you're talking about 
um, when you're a child and you're in school and you, you're like, actually, I need to research deeper than what the teacher is giving me because I'm not sure if, that, if it's good enough. So there are these kind of different, different layers to the way you approach stuff. And I, I suppose I'm curious to know at what point you started identifying these themes in the way you worked. Or was it, was it just kind of an intuitive thing? You just did it without thinking? No, it was, it was, I, I don't believe much in this world is intuitive or new. Um, at all I think a lot of what we're discovering is just a rediscovery or a reinterpretation of something that's been before or something that someone's known before um, <clears throat> when you want to talk about intuitive into the only strong intuition that I have is um, I developed this kind of need this thirst for knowledge early on and I understood that me alone, I couldn't figure out where to go with this thirst unless I was guided. Mm. And I didn't have a mentor per se. So I, I just developed a discerning eye for whose advice to take. And that's where the difference between me and other people that probably didn't develop this mm. coming in, come into, comes into play. So the main aspect of, of that is um, I started kind of with a trial and error. So whenever somebody would, and it started with books. So when, when someone would suggest to me, oh, you should read that book, I wouldn't question it. I would just order the book and read it. And I've been doing that since I was young. Okay. So whatever book someone suggested or movie to watch or something, I would say, if, I would always say, if that person has advised it, it's because they've seen something or I've said something that has made them think of that. Mm. And, it's, and they feel that by me researching deeper, in, by watching that movie or reading that book, I'm going to get a better insight into it. So they're trying to help me. So I, when I quickly caught on to that, I started, it, it started happening a lot with the martial arts because I think, you know, I'd be around friends and there'd be something saying things like, oh, you should be, a, you, you're going to be a philosopher. You should be a philosopher. The things you talk about, about life and things like that. Have you looked into uh, someone like uh, The Art of War? Have you read that book? And I'd be like, that sounds interesting. So I'd order it mm. and I'd read it. Or they would suggest, oh, have you read the Book of Five Rings? Have you watched Fighter in the Wind? Have you? And then from there, I just started develop. I started piecing things together. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where this desire for the martial arts came from. But the more I started piecing together, it was almost like I was discovering who I was, discovering mm. myself. I don't know whether it's a part, something that comes from a past life, whether people who believe in that stuff or reincarnation. So, but I just felt like the more I looked into martial arts, the more I began to be in touch and in tune with who I truly am. Yeah. And the more I learned to express myself honestly as I truly am. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it I attribute it. So I don't have some sort of like um, unique understanding or anything like that. My, my sort of knowledge comes from people, from speaking to people and mm. taking people's advice and having a discerning eye for when to, to go and research something that I've been asked to research. Mm. And but that's a really useful skill, being able to know whose advice to take and who not, right? Because exactly, yeah. everyone will give you it's advice. It's trial and error, yeah. <laughs> you learn. Like, you, like I said, I started with trial and error, and then I started realizing quickly who were being useful. And so a lot of it, I'll look at the context by which someone has suggested something. So if the context is educational, where we're having a debate and we're both sharing ideas and learning, and then someone suggests for me to check something out, then that makes sense because it's an informative 
atmosphere, it's a, it's a, it's a discursive environment. And um, if they've suggested, you know what, go and read this, it means that it might heighten my awareness. Mm. So, yeah. Whilst if it's, if it's, I found that if it's conflictory, like, I don't know if that's the word, but it's, if it derives from confrontation or conflict, or someone's got an ego and they're just trying to prove something, um, you might end up researching something that you don't particularly agree with or that's not very useful mm. to yourself, but that might back the other person's point of view, mm. but still doesn't resolve your issues in your life. <laughs> okay, so if, if the advice comes from the place of, of like love or, or altruism, exactly. you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. that's cool. It's interesting what you're talking about in terms of when you met martial arts, you, you almost felt like you were discovering yourself because I, I, I took that two ways. I thought it could be that you know, your, your biology and your personality is such that when you met this discipline, it was so well suited, it's like it clicked. Mm-hmm. But then I also took it another way, which is that through practicing martial arts, you, you kind of get um, pushed into a reflective cycle because you learn more about yourself yeah. and, then you, and then you're able to engage more and then you learn more about yourself and then you're able to engage more. And so, you know, through this kind of cycle of self-discovery and, and progression, you, you end up kind of being both more able to learn about yourself and having the means to learn about yourself. Correct, yeah. And the thing I've done as well, I agree with that. And with regards to like self-reflection, the thing that I've actually done um, is I've taken a lot of what I've studied um, in business as well in terms of keeping reflective logs, writing diaries, Mm. um, doing SWOT analyses, uh, looking at pestle analyses, looking at market research, industry research, and uh, branding and stuff. So all of that knowledge that I've read over years and years and years of looking into business, um, I've used that on myself. I've used those tools of analysis and observation and research on my boxing, on my Mm. career, on myself. So everything that I've done in my life, um, and, and this is one, this one, like most of who I am comes from periods in my life where I can recall I've had epiphanies, where I've had realizations to how things actually work. Mm-hmm. And then I've tested them on myself and found my ideas to have a lot of ecological validity and a lot of use in my life. Um, so I just kept doing it. So one of the things that I quickly uh, realized early on in my life is that knowledge is kind of, knowledge is knowledge. It comes from a source, like information and knowledge comes from a source, but it branches out. Mm -hmm. It just branches out. It's like a tree with many different branches, right? Um, So I quickly began to cross cross, uh, knowledge, uh, kind of cross disciplinary is that what they call it yeah I started crossing disciplines and I realized a lot of what I would learn in biology was applicable in chemistry and then they called that biochemistry and then I realized you've got psychology and then you've got medicine and then the two cross and, and I started to realize hold on there's a lot of compartmentalization going on but a lot of these disciplines are kind of talking about the same thing yeah. but they're just coming to different methods and I realized that early on while I was in school and then, I, and then I literally just said to myself, you know what, knowledge is just one, but it's just been branched and people just, mm. and then I started look, and then I started paying close attention to the terminologies that different subjects would use or different disciplines. And I was like, hold on, 
two, two disciplines that are talking about the exact same thing, but they have different terminologies. Yeah. But all that the terminologies do is it just helps the experts understand and communicate a little bit easier. So as opposed to having the long way around of explaining something, you just have that one terminology that you mm-hmm. say, and it could mean a hundred things to an expert. But to someone down the road, it could mean nothing. So once I've begun to understand the power of terminology, I've begun to understand, okay, every discipline or every sort of branch of knowledge has some sort of, um, how can I put it, a premise to it, almost like a philosophical premise. The premise of biology is that we can understand the world through studying the body or organisms. So, and let's say in psychology, uh, they, let's say behavior, in psychology is even deeper because psychology got all these branches, you've got behaviorists, cognitive, this and that, right? But they're all kind of talking about the same thing. What essentially they're saying is, how do we understand human nature? How do we understand the world that we live in? How do we understand life? How do we start understand the mind? And how do we understand all these beautiful, great things that the universe is presenting to us? Mm-hmm. And they just have different terminologies by which to communicate. And then, and then I became almost like a, a detective, like an infiltrator, like some spy. I was like, you know what? If I, I realize if I truly want to understand the premise of anything, I must first begin with the terminology. Mm-hmm. If I can understand the terminology, I can then infiltrate whatever is going on. So I just started looking at different disciplines and studying their terminology. And then I looked into Latin because I realized quickly that, you know what, a lot of these words come from Latin and being Portuguese and speaking Portuguese, I have an advantage because it's a Romance language. So, you know, you've got the French, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish. So I started looking into Latin and I, and then I started getting to a point where I understood the, the commonalities between the Romance language and, and the, the sort of the certain medic, medical words. And mm-hmm. it got to a point where I'd be in biology class and the teacher would say a word. And I didn't know the meaning, but I knew what it was because it's very similar to a Portuguese word, mm-hmm. which relates to Latin and means mm-hmm. this. And because I know it in Portuguese, I understood it. Anyway... Um, fast forward, all of that allowed me to then acquire knowledge from many branches, from business, uh, from psychology, from people, and um, boxing as well. Uh, with boxing, what I found interesting is that boxing has terminologies, but boxing is a lot more flexible. Martial arts is a lot more flexible than other disciplines. Other disciplines have, um, uh, it's like Bruce Lee said, Bruce Lee said, Everything's. they start with a theory, an idea, a theory, and then they practice the theory, then they run this uh, test and they do an observation, and then this, the theory all of a sudden becomes law, and, and it becomes indisputable law. Now you can't even argue against this theory. But everything begins with a theory. Why does it begin with a theory? Because truly, we don't, we don't know what it really is. We, 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 we guess. We say, I'm going to guess it's this. And then we, we do these experiments and we, but then how many theories, how many laws have been disproven over the years? So wait, how does that link back to boxing? With boxing, it's the same thing. With boxing, it's like, so when I came into boxing, I found there's a lot more flexibility because the, the, the laws were more relaxed as opposed to other disciplines, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The laws were more relaxed. It was more of a case of, okay, we have this uh, schema of information. We have this kind of like way of doing things but we also understand individual differences very well we understand that the human body can do certain things that 
not everyone can explain. Mm. And the way that we learn uh, martial arts is different. So, you know, I, I have different attributes. I might have fast twitch muscles or slow twitch muscles, or I might be have having more power, or I might have a better tool. Or, sure. Yeah, you know. So I felt at home with martial arts. It was mm. That flexibility allowed me to be at home, and it shows. Evidently, it shows in the sense that I've got my own YouTube channel where I explore my own theories about, mm-hmm. I have my own conversations. I even create my own terminologies to explore these ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got other shout out to other coaches like Barry Robinson, who always have their own crazy terminologies, but they're not laws. Yeah. 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 No, they're no, not, it's so true. They're not irrefutable truths. Right. And I, so I love that. So we, we've just taken essentially like, academia and the compartmentalization of knowledge and then we've taken boxing and and in a way you can you can completely run with this analogy because in boxing there's the aim right what you're what you're aiming to discover is how to win that fight and then within that there are different routes that you can approach that you know so you might be a counter puncher you might be aggressive or correct you know whatever your whatever your your best case is you might apply that and then reflect on it and be like, I want to try a different technique. And then you have similar to what you're describing with, you know, sociology and medicine, biology, you have different camps spring up and they're like, we think this is the best way to understand the world. So then, you know, you might have um, Floyd Mayweather saying, I think the best way to understand the world of boxing and winning is with being defensive. And then you might have, you know, um, Robert Garcia being like, I think the best way to to achieve it is with a completely different style, which is, you know, more pressure based or or whatever. And you come up with shorthand terminology associated with the camps, right? Correct. So you know, with so with Barry, um, the one that always sticks in my head is like Occupy Wall Street or Controlled Spine. And and what's really cool about that is that those those catchphrases, like you said, they hold a whole lot of uh, like implicit knowledge. Yeah. So you're like, okay, exactly. Occupy Wall Street. Now I I immediately know from that, you know, you're, you're trying to you're trying to block off other people's hands. You're trying to, you know, so you might be using hand control, so you have to think about range. You, you know, you're, you're, you might be using it for defense or offense. So there's this whole kind of like schema of, of technique and associated knowledge with this captured in this one phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really, that's a, I really like the way that you did that. And it reminds me of something that I came, came out of my participants' uh, interviews in my research, which is when, coaches in these um, boxing interventions are using boxing as a way to analyze life. So, you know, they, they might be saying um, in this, in this, in this technique, you are learning something which is applicable to life. So for example, we're training the jab and the jab is about probing. So you, in the same way that you probe with the jab before you commit with the right hand, you might with a job interview do some research on a company before you write out the cover letter mm-hmm. and they would be directly applying a, a technique to life. But then equally they'd be applying life to techniques. So they'd be saying, okay, let's think about why you don't just shout at people and say mean things because it's the equivalent of throwing all your punches in the first minute and getting gassed out mm-hmm. or getting angry and, and then losing your head. And so they're using boxing as a microcosm to analogize about life and giving people strategies to, mm-hmm. to get ahead and, and, and understand the world around them. So I think, um, you know, potentially you could do that with any discipline, but I think it's really cool to use, you know, use that framework and see how it helps you understand things. Correct. Yeah, indeed. Um, 
there's so much. I mean, there's like when I've got so many. That's why I'm writing. I have to write the book. Yes, it's just every. It's like oh, every couple of days I've got some new, you know, awareness of something, and I just want to explore it. So, what is the book? Tell tell people. Um, Well, I know a little teaser. It's just well, I haven't got a fixed title, but um, I go basically my idea and understanding is that. There are boxing can be split into many elements, but the main three that I split it into is the condition element, which is the fitness, the mm. technical element, and then the strategic element. Mm. The condition element is your fitness, your training, uh, your physical ability and composition. Your technical element is the skill. Um, I feel like I've explored a lot of both um, through my career and on my YouTube channel. I teach a lot of technique. Um, I've trained my body to crazy, crazy fitness levels. Um, and I do explore some strategic elements, but it, I don't feel like it's something that is, that I'm able to express without writing it. I don't feel it. I feel that's the strategic element is so vast that it requires, um, time. It requires, uh, a lot of explanation a lot of examples and it's something that can be applied to many different aspects so um, there are many different strategies um, and, this, and this is the thing about if I'm going to wrap wrap it all up in terms of like not the interview but if I'm going to wrap the idea the whole idea up until now of what I've learned uh, through my through martial arts is that you could get you could train really hard right you could train really hard be really really fit um, you could have all the great techniques and then you get in the ring and something happens and you lose, mm. right? And then everyone's left stunned and they don't understand. Um, it's usually going to, the answers for it is usually coming down to two things. It's going to come down to strategic element, which is usually when fighters get beat, they usually, you know, aside from conditioning of strength, power, speed and all that stuff, and aside from tech, and aside from technical ability, um, luck is another thing, but that's an element also. Um, taking the wrong fights uh, and getting beat, that could be bad luck. Mm. Taking fights at the wrong time, that, that's just got to be smart. Um, but the, the, tech, the strategic element is requires planning, uh, foresight, mm. and requires contingencies, right? And good execution. But Another aspect where fighters, because the strategic element can be done by the coaches and the trainers, and that can be provided to you. Um, but I think where we really let ourselves out as fighters is the mental aspects of it. I was just going to mention that. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. it's the mental, so it's the two that are missing, these two components in the boxing industry. Like strategy, yes, people do talk about strategy and having a game plan, they call it a game plan. But the mental aspect of it, is kind of overlooked sometimes and I quickly like caught onto it throughout my, you know, my amateur career. I caught onto it and I realized, you know what, you could have everything going for you, but if you don't have the strategy and the mental, uh, ap- uh, how can I put it? Mental aptitude. Is that, is that the word? Yeah. yeah. Uh, then you I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> just the ability. Aptitude. Yeah. 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 Well, I know what it means kind of conceptually, but, yeah, but I don't yeah. have to have the exact definition, but if you don't have the mental aptitude, for it, then you're so um, I think within so you broke it down you got you got the kind of physical yeah. the, the technical the yeah. strategic yeah and, and the mental and the mental and 
when I hear you talk about the mental, I, I feel like, you know, it's partly about decision-making in the ring yeah. in terms of at, at that moment, what is the appropriate thing to do? Is it, you know, to move off of the ropes or is it to bait in your opponent or whatever? But I also think that, and I heard um, Firaz Zahabi talk about this, one of the MMA trainers in Canada, and he was talking about this, uh, you know, the, the physical the, the technical and the strategic and, and I think that as well as the mental aspect you, you talked about in terms of and what I'm projecting onto that is decision making in the ring but I also think there's a psychological layer and when I think about the training that goes on in the gym you know you, you train your body to be fit you train techniques so that you you know you're efficient and, and you have that procedural memory so it's kind of thoughtless in terms of action and you also prepare a game plan a strategy for a fight but I do wonder whether gyms train the, the psychology of a fighter. Oh, no, they, don't, so, they don't. They don't. And, and I think I think that that's. I mean, I don't know anything about preparing a world class fighter for a fight yet. But from a psychologist's point of view, I think that training the psychology of a fighter is huge because if you can increase confidence and reduce nerves, then you're going to see more um, actioning of what is planned. You know, so I suppose that that's my take on it. Is I would add a, a psychological layer, and I know that sports psychologists exist. So you know, there there is there is some recognition that this is a phenomenon. Um, so I can say a few things regarding that. So I'm going to go a little bit deep because I'm very kind of like philosophical with things. Uh, you know, um, the nature of most of our conflicts is our inability to accept the duality of things the duality of life. And you're going to have to explain that. So that's the, that's the kind of uh, the outcome of not being able to accept the, the, the grayness almost. The grayness of life creates most of our conflicts. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's our borderline behavior, our borderline attitude to want to see the world in black and white sometimes that creates that conflict because the world isn't just black and white. And um, so this is why I, I quickly switched on and realized that most knowledge comes from one branch, from one source. And it just, what we've done with it is we've compartmentalized it because we have an inability to understand things about separating them from certain realities. Um, so you will find that you can take an idea or a concept put it into one story or one narrative and it makes complete sense. And then you take that, put it into a completely different narrative and it still makes sense. Mm-hmm. But we can't comprehend that. So we fight and we argue with each other and we say, mine is better than yours. Mm-hmm. We can't understand two can be right. There can be two answers for one thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard. That it's the human brain struggles to understand that. It struggles to understand that sometimes two plus two is four, but three plus one is also four. Right, and even though we understand it mathematically, when it comes to other disciplines, we struggle with that idea. Um, I don't know where that comes from. That's something that I'm trying to evaluate in my life um, and trying to understand why it's like that. That's something that I fight against. I try not to be discriminative, um, and I'm not talking about race or gender or anything. I'm just talking about I try not to have preferences in life. I try not to say this is good and this is bad to the mm. point where even I try to discard with morality, but still try to do the right thing. The, the, the kind of 
duality of life is very complicated. Um, Bruce Lee tried to explain to us when he said limitations without limitation, and we didn't understand because it's hard to understand that when someone's talking on that level. Um, technique without technique, knowledge without knowledge, right? Um, how do we understand things like that? Well, people have been studying the mind for centuries, right, in different cultures. Like if we look at uh, Buddhists, they've been looking at how the mind works. They've basically been doing first-hand studies on their own minds. They sit down and they observe their minds mm. and they look at it and they say, okay, what is my mind doing right now? And is it good? Is it bad? And they do it to a point where they don't even discriminate. They don't say good or bad, but they just observe. Mm. They just are. Um, that's something that is very powerful, but it's, it's something that we struggle with. When we're talking about a fighter getting into the ring to fight, um, this is, I talk a lot about this in my book as well, so just give it a bit. When we talk about fighters getting in the ring to fight, um, I talk about the concept of the fighter being in observation of himself. Um, and I talk about it in relation to fear. So I say the way I understand fear sometimes is, um, I talk about other things too, but this is one idea. Um, I imagine myself as a fighter. I'll go into the ring and I step into the ring and I'm about to fight and engage in battle. But then there's a spectator uh, watching, right? She's watching or whoever's watching. And um, they feel excitement, but they don't feel fear because they're not in danger. They're not going to get attacked. They're not going to feel the punishment. Um, I observe myself in battle in the same way that the spectators would be observing me. So that's how I remove myself from the attachments of negative, not negative, but just the attachment of certain overwhelming emotions such mm-hmm. as fear and confusion and things like that. So mm-hmm. when I'm actually boxing, I'm just observing myself in, in motion, in action. I'm not actually discriminating and saying, oh, that punch was good, that was bad. I'm just enjoying it. I'm enjoying the process and just going through it. I'm not trying to win so far as I'm just trying to get better. I feel like there are two elements to that that I have really liked. The first is that obviously you've reached a, a point with your technique that it is so procedural. You don't have to actively think, I need to jab now. So, you know, that that first en- enables you to, to dissociate like that. But the second thing that's really interesting is that it really, and this is kind of goes back to what you're saying in terms of like boxing off knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. But it really reminds me of things you learn about if you do a mindfulness stress, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course or do a cognitive behavior therapy course, you'll, you'll learn about observing the feelings in your body mm-hmm. and then connecting them to the thoughts that they're triggering in your mind. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it does place you in that, that observer role. And in doing that, it means that you're less caught up in the power of that feeling or, or that thought. And mm-hmm. it means that you're more able to, to make a positive choice mm-hmm. kind of in terms of your emotional regulation. And so I can imagine that if you are employ- employing that kind of um, technique in the ring, in the heat of the action, it will mean that you are, um, you're more loose and you're letting things just flow out. Mm-hmm. And so What's really interesting is that's a technique that you've built up over your career as an elite level fighter. Come to me now, you know, and I've had I've had one fight and I've been boxing for two and a half years, so it's it's a completely different um, life experience. But what I did in preparation for my fight was continuing to meditate and visualize 
how I was going to be when I entered the ring, how I walked to the ring, how I got into the ring. And all I wanted to do in terms of um, placing myself in the best, the best situation possible approaching that was just to be in the moment with it. And so if you watch the video on, on Moreno TV of, of my fight, you'll see when I come uh, out and the music's playing, I'm like looking around to the crowd. And actually, when I look that back now, it looks like I'm like trying to be cocky or whatever it is. And actually, all I'm doing is in the moment being like, let me look around and see who is in the room. Present. Let yeah. me just be right here with it. And so then when I got in the ring, I was completely comfortable with being in the ring. And, and I feel like what that meant is that I was less um, tense. And it's, it's really interesting to kind of to acknowledge the thread of, of truth there between my experience and your experience in yeah. terms of like being in the moment. Um, so uh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I dig that. I dig that. Um, where do we go from here? <laughs> so, so you talked about the book a bit. Yeah, so one of the concepts actually that I talk about is uh, the three unities. So that's one of my theories that hopefully does not become law. <laughs> um, so the, the idea of the three unities is uh, I first came across it when I was studying English uh, literature, A-level, and I was, we were looking at Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and my teacher mentioned, of, he said, pay attention of the intensity of how Tennessee uses the three unities to create this feeling of imprisonment, right? So it's like it takes the, the story takes place in one day. Uh, it all happens in one day. Uh, it takes place in the takes uh, place in the same house. They don't go anywhere. In only one or two rooms in the house, um, and there's a lot of action going on. So it's the three unities of time, space, and action, mm-hmm. right? And the the way that he uses the three unities it kind of constricts them, creates this feeling of suffocation. Mm. Uh, and then after, and then you've got then it, it's also you've got the dialogue, you've got you know the intensity of the dialogue, which creates like almost like a prison of words. Um, and I just for some reason that was years ago, that, and it just stayed in my mind the idea of the three unities. So I'd, I'd say almost like as an homage is that the word homage homage yeah. or homage to to it, I named my idea uh, free unity. So that is, it's the intent, the free unity is, is the utilization of mind, emotion, and body uh, to basically achieve victory. Mm. It's utilizing that intensity of the three unifying mind, body, and action. Um, and sometimes we get dislodged as fighters. And this is where the problem is. This is where um, sometimes the idea of borderline um, and kind of discriminatory approach to fighting gets you in trouble mm. <clears throat> to say that the jab is my favorite punch, things like that. You know, oh my, I have a powerful right hand. I mean, I could go on and on, but I'm going to give you a lot of examples. Um, so the, how do I'll just tell you a couple of stories to exemplify the idea of uh, borderline. So there was the samurai warrior who was exceptionally gifted with his left hand, in, you know, with the short sword and he um, one day he challenged another warrior another samurai warrior to a battle um, having received the challenge the other warrior wrote back commending him on his use of the left hand saying you have an amazing left hand um, and 
he wrote back and saying, yes, okay, thank you, but I want to fight. He said, yeah, okay, I'll, let me think about it a bit bit longer. But in the meantime, he kept writing these letters, you know, lavishing praise on his left hand, saying that he's, you know, exceptional ability. Eventually, he got annoyed. The other warrior got annoyed and said, you know what? You've been talking about my left hand. You have to fight now. Um, and as the fight commenced, the, the, the warrior was very gifted, um, began to overthink his left hand. Suddenly now he's been praised so much that he's started making all sorts of calculations on which best way to cut with his left hand to make use of his full power. And his mind got thrown into confusion. And in the time that he's trying to debate with himself, he's been slashed across the arm and lost his arm, basically lost the battle. Uh, he didn't die, but he just retired. And since then, he devoted his life to the study of the mind and why his mind got so messed mm. up. Um, much can be said on this, but um, the, a, a lot of my understanding of how I prepare fighters is to do with understanding how the mind works. For example, um, if I have a fighter going into a fight and they have a particularly strong punch, let's say they have a very powerful right hand, and all of a sudden the whole world is laying praise on their particular technique because they've, let's say they've knocked someone out. Um, having seen the warnings of warriors past from centuries ago, I'd probably go to that fighter and say, wait, wait a minute, you need to kind of pay attention to this because the world is lavishing praise on your right hand, but you must not pay attention to that because it's going to give you a borderline mentality. You're going to be so focused on that one aspect. Mm. You're going to begin to see things in black and white, but the fight is not going to pan out like that. Um, but instead what happens, you get the fighter going in and hesitating to throw his right hand, mm -hmm. hesitating, hesitating, and the fight is over and he's lost, right? Uh, so this is how you can have someone who's got tremendous technique, tremendous ability, power, but through workings of the world and not understanding certain things and understanding certain um, aspects of, of fighting, they can get in trouble. That's one example. Mm -hmm. um, I can give you a, another example if you want. Yeah, man. I, I think, <laughs> like, I'm curious to hear another example, but I'm also, I'm really mindful of the fact that because boxing has such a rich history, mm -hmm. I feel like to some degree, the traditional boxing gym has a really uh, old school format of how it develops fighters. And, and I suppose I, I wonder why they, they don't think about the mind more. I feel like actually what, what happens is that they... We're getting some snippets. I feel, what, I feel what happens is that they might be developing the mind without meaning to develop the mind. So for example, you know, being careful about sparring opponents or ensuring that someone sees progress through putting in effort athletically and then, you know, checking milestones that, that does develop a mind to some degree in terms of your, your self efficacy. But I feel like there could be a more intentional way around it basically. Yeah. I feel The, the power of the mind is so underestimated, it's unbelievable. Um, and that's the shame of it. The shame of it is that we place a lot of emphasis on physiological and uh, sometimes we pay attention to the emotional as well. But 
we overlook the mental aspect of things and the, the mind creates realities. Mm. And this is what sometimes we, we, we create our reality. If you, you know, that's why I look up to uh, trainers like Tunde Ajayi, who works with Anthony Yard. And what does he say? See it, believe it, become it. Because he understands that the, in, in their mind, they're already been world champions years ago. Mm. They just, the belt's the just, just going to come when it comes. <laughs> in their head, they're probably already free, got free world titles. Um, but, you know, it's like Henry Ford said, if you believe, if a man believes he can, and if he believes he can't, either is right, you're probably mm. right. So if you think you can achieve something, you're probably going to do it. I read Tyson's biography. Yeah. And um, I was really struck by the way that it was Dundee, right? No, uh, Cass. Yeah, Customato. <laughs> Just conflating the two great boxing trainers. Um, yeah, you read, you read about how Cass worked with him. It, it was all psychological, like waking him up. He used to wake him up and shout affirmations in his face, like, you're going to be the greatest. Like, that, that was throughout his childhood, at home, so you know it wasn't in the it wasn't in the boxing gym. Like the other hours of the day, he had Customato telling him all of these things and, and challenging him, waking him up and saying, "How bad do you want it?" You know, like really testing his his sense of self. And I I would love to be able to sit down with Tyson and interview him about it, just to explore the kind of psychological workings of that process. Because that, you know, that's crazy. Can you imagine, can you imagine living with another one yourself who is, who is challenging you to be the best that you can um, be? Yeah. Tyson's story is kind of like an interesting one and, and it's, it's a tragic one as well. Um, Tyson, you know, and Tyson kind of almost exemplifies how our society works. Our society is, um, you know, we, we live, we're, we're very capitalist, okay? Very consumerist capitalist. And anyone who studies business understands that, you know, what do they call an entrepreneur? Is you know, someone who takes resources from an area of low demand to an area of high demand, right? And creates certain products and services that society wants. And then society, what does it do? It rewards them. Um, an entrepreneur is not just someone who is in business, is someone who sells, right? We're pretty much all entrepreneurs on some degree. Um, well, we sell ourselves daily. Exactly. Tyson sold the world this heroic, fearsome warrior, almost like a Conan barbarian type of image that yeah. men, as men, I feel like a lot of us fed off of that. We fed off of that power, that masculinity, right? He sold that to us. Um, but it also, there's the other side, and the society rewarded it him for it during the time he was champion, you know, you know, 30 million in one fight in one night, I think it was. Um, but, you know, it also shows us the tragic side shows us how society handles failure, <laughs> which is <laughs> very, very interesting. Society doesn't like failure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't accept it and it, it will punish you and it will remove everything that it's given you. We take it back. So after he's lost that masculinity and that, we just took it back. We said, ah, screw it, we're going to go somewhere else. And, mm-hmm. and look what that does to a person. Look, look what that's done to him and how he's had to kind of go his path to kind of mm-hmm. recover from that. A lot of that, a lot of that 
attitude uh, that society has it's got a lot to do with why I didn't go pro why I don't particularly feel that I need to prove anything to the world I don't really feel the pressure of having to show my skills or anything mm. I'm happy to exhibit on my own show under Moreno Boxing Banner because I feel like it would just be fun like I'll just enjoy it yeah, it's yeah. not for any particular reason I'm doing it because I want to and because I can right that's one thing I like about boxing do things because you can and because you want to um, but you know and, and again it goes back to that borderline thing it's like you know people say to themselves I'm only valuable as an athlete or as a performer um, if I achieve this or this or that society is only going to value me for this or that so where I come from as a fighter where I come from as an athlete where I come from as a human being first and foremost is how do I get my mind right just because how do I get myself to be, you know, you know, with Moreno Box, you know what it is, be where you, be who you want to be. Mm-hmm. That's a deep concept. Mm-hmm. It's not do what you want to do. It's not say what you want to say. It's not act how you want to act. It's just be who you want to be. Yeah. It's just about being, baby. And um, I feel like sometimes we get too caught up in being valued for who, what we say, for what we do, for what we achieve, and not for who we are, Right. So I believe there's great power in knowing first and foremost who you are, discovering yourself, uh, win or lose, accepting. Like one thing that helped me clear my mind before fights was accepting the reality that I could very well lose Mm. those fights and being okay with that and just still doing my best. Mm. Um, And it helped me that if I did lose, I just moved on from it and just went and took on the next challenge. Mm -hmm. No biggie. Um, discarding the ego you know putting the ego aside so it doesn't talk to you in the middle of the fight it's not mm. saying ah that jab is rubbish you see mm. I know you could so you know there's, it's, it's for me as a fighter as a martial artist the way that I look at boxing and you know it's, it's just deeper it's a lot deeper than just getting in the ring and performing and showboating and stuff what, 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 what about when you're at home on your home what about when you've won the fight and you've gotten the trophy or you've gotten the check and now you're at home on your own. Um, no one's around and you just got to be with your mind, with your thoughts. And what happens if you're sitting there with that big check and you're still not satisfied, mm-hmm. you're still not fulfilled. You still don't feel valued. You still don't feel understood. Oof, yeah, that sounded like an almost cinematic place to end the episode. So I did. <laughs> um, it was so nice chatting to Carlos about all things boxing, business, philosophy, psychology. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know, get in touch, find the deets in the show notes. And, you know, same as always, please share, please subscribe. All right, speak soon. Sizzle.